0: Old Testament, Minor Prophets, Book of Micah. And um, as we come to Micah this morning, we're making a major shift in our focus on the prophets because the ones that we have been studying mostly up until this point have been prophets to the northern kingdom. And you remember those guys, right? The kingdom was divided. There was the northern kingdom. That uh, was ten tribes, and the southern kingdom consisting of Judah and Benjamin. And most of the prophecies of the northern kingdom and th- those prophets basically had a message that judgment is coming, and there wasn't a lot of hope. Uh, it seemed like you know the, the, they were hammering home the truth that you're out of the will of God, you're you're following sinful. Directions in your life and judgment is coming. And sure enough, in the northern kingdom it did. The Assyrians overran them in 722 BC and they never once in their whole history had a revival or a turning back to God. The southern kingdom is a different story. There were several revivals in the south. And as we come to listen to the prophecies of Micah, who by the way was a contemporary with Isaiah. These two prophets were preaching at about the same time. And the only reason Isaiah is a major prophet and Micah is a minor prophet is because Isaiah is much longer. In fact, it's one of the longest books in the Bible. Whereas Micah is much shorter. Isaiah has 66 chapters. Micah has 7. But their messages were very similar. And Micah came from a a town outside of Jerusalem, about 20 miles to the east, or to the west, I mean, toward the Mediterranean. And his name is actually a shortened version of Micaiah. And Micaiah means, who is like Jehovah. And it turns out that that was one of the key messages of Micah. We'll see that in a little bit, but basically he poses the question, not wonderingly, but sort of rhetorically, who is like our God? He is an amazing God who pardons sins. And that's kind of the focal point of Micah's message. Micah had such a pointed message along with Isaiah to the spiritual leaders and political leaders of the southern kingdom that eventually under Hezekiah there was a great turning back to God and there was a great revival. And because there were periodic revivals and restoration in the south, the southern kingdoms of Judah and Benjamin lasted longer. They did not go into Babylonian captivity until 586 and in fact... Unlike their northern brothers that were basically never really heard from again, the southern kingdom and the promises of God were restored. And Jews today predominantly trace their lineage back through these two tribes of Judah and Benjamin because they're the only ones we really know about for sure. But God was faithful to his people in preserving a remnant. Micah was largely anointed by God to influence some of that repentance and turning to God. As we look to Micah's prophecy, you know, we're kind of doing like a flyby. This this is like a survey. I told you I was going to bring one message per book and try to capture the essence of that prophet's message. So we have necessity kind of have to do a, a flyby and And just get snapshots, but every once in a while we have to turn the zoom in on the camera and come down and and take a close-up and a picture of what's going on. And in Micah chapter 1, verse 2, Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple, because the Lord is coming forth from his place and he will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. Micah is kind of saying, you guys have this image of God that he's up there in the heavens somewhere. He's up in his holy temple and he's kind of not paying a whole lot of attention. But guess what? He's coming out for a walk. He's going to come stroll through Jerusalem and the high places and the mountains and they're going to quake because he's going to come take a close-up viewpoint. You know, this is simply prophetic speak of saying God knows what's going on. Don't think of him as being off out there somewhere. He's right here, and he's watching, and he's paying attention, and he knows what's going on, and he sees what you're doing. And Micah brings a message similar to some of his fellow prophets in the saying, God is particularly angry with those who use their political and spiritual positions of influence and power to advance their own personal wealth and their agenda and the agenda of their uh, cronies. Let's look at uh, Micah chapter 2 for a moment. And this is is a very interesting passage, and I want you to see what's going on here. Micah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Woe to those who scheme iniquity. Now, I'm just going to stop right there and say, this is what we call premeditation. Okay, these are not people who get in a jam and without thinking it through, do something foolish. These are people who plan Their iniquity, they scheme it, they cook it up, they devise ways to be wicked. And he says, they work out the evil on their beds. In other words, get the picture, they're laying awake at night, thinking up ways to be wicked. Now, they're probably not thinking of it as wickedness. See, this is the problem. They're thinking of it as opportunity. They're laying awake at night trying to figure out how they can gain advantage within the legal structure to take every opportunity to advance their own purposes. Stay with me and see what he says about them. Because when morning comes, they do it. Okay, what did they do? They laid awake at night thinking up ways to take advantage in a what God says is wickedness. And when the morning comes, they go out and do what they planned. You say, how do they do that? How can they just leave their house in the morning and go do these wicked schemes? Well, because it's in the power of their hands. In other words... They're the leaders. They're the rulers. They're the legislators. They're the executive branch. They're the judges. They're the power brokers and high-ranking business people. There was a great disparity. Remember how we talked about this a few weeks ago? There was a great disparity, a, a growing gap between the upper class and the underprivileged in the nation of Israel because as prosperity came, the people in a position to gain the most benefit, the rich and powerful, took advantage. And what happens is the gap widens between the haves and the have-nots. And as the gap widens, the haves are the ones who gain power and prominence. They get the offices. They get appointed as the judges. They become the congressmen, if you please. They get in positions where they can utilize their influence to further their goals. Wow. This doesn't sound like 2,800 years ago, does it? This sounds like politics in Illinois. This sounds like right now. This is today. And he says, they covet fields and then seize them. How do they do that? Do do they go out with um, machetes and bows and arrows and swords and rob the people that own them? No. They find a way to trick them out of their property. That's what God is saying. You're finding a clever way to steal the property. He says... And houses, they take them away. They rob a man in his house and a man of his house and of his inheritance. They find ways to do in the poor and to take advantage and opportunity of that. You know, this is a message we've heard before, but I think we need to kind of have it underscored that God is very concerned about what we do. And it does not matter how cleverly we figure out legal legal ways and, and legalities of working through one thing and another in order to reach our objectives. The truth is, there is dishonest gain that is under the cover of law. And those who do not have the power to withstand it because they don't have the political clout lose out. How do I know that these are the people God is talking about for sure? Well, look in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 1 and following, and I said, here now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, but you who hate the good and love the evil? who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones and eat the flesh of My people. You strip off their skin and break their bones and chop them up for the pot as meat in a kettle. Wow! Isn't that graphic? You know, you steal the skin right off their backs. And who are these people doing this? The rulers of the house of Jacob of Israel and the heads of Jacob. They're the ones. And if you go on in the chapter a little bit, I'll skip over some of this, but go down and look at uh, verse 9 of chapter 3. Now, hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight. How many times do you and I hear of a law or of a plan or of an opportunity that's been devised to help someone, and someone comes along and figures out how to twist even that for their personal advantage. It's pretty amazing. You know, in our country today, I don't think we're ever going to really know what happened in the back rooms of Wall Street and big business and government 15, 20, 25 years ago that laid the scene for the ultimate collapse. And, and by the way, it's very easy now, we have to keep a balanced perspective, it's very easy now for uh, the, the, the poor and the underprivileged to say, look what they did to us and, and realize that they were <laughs> holding the carrot out in front of us. But there was a plan, and I don't think we're ever going to fully understand all that went on. But I do know that there were people, even 15 years ago, I remember seeing a documentary about a woman that was uh, actually uh, invited under the Bush administration to um, be a head of a watchdog group appointed by the president to kind of oversee the SEC and whatever, and she, she was actually at one time a candidate for a Supreme Court uh, justice, and she began to sound the warning alarm back in the '90s of what was going to happen. You know, she began to to, to ring that warning, and um, what occurred after that period of time was they basically laughed her out of the room. She's the one that challenged Alan Greenspan and said, what you're doing is foolishness. It's going to come to naught. You're going to, this whole thing is going to collapse. And uh, people laughed at her and said, how can you dare take on somebody with as much wisdom and intelligence as Alan Greenspan? How can you do that? Then they showed a video clip of him sitting testifying before Congress, literally with his head in his hands saying, I was mistaken. I was completely wrong. He believed the market would always correct itself. And he failed to factor in one driving motivation in the heart of human beings called greed. The market is not self-correcting among people who are driven by sin and greed to gain their own advantage no matter what the cost. There is a crash that comes. We'll never know the whole story. And even in the recovery process, we'll never know the whole story. We'll never know how things are being twisted and turned for illegal gain and advantage. I'm amazed at all the credit schemes that are being offered today. I'm amazed at people who will give you an advance on your paycheck, and take, they can't really charge 520% interest because it's against the law. They'll just take a 10% processing fee. It's technically legal. It's morally usury. And it takes advantage. We live in an evil time, just like Micah's day. And when he began to preach this message, it was not immediately received very well. But notice what God says. You who are rulers, verse 9 of chapter 3, who are rulers of the house of Israel, you abhor justice and twist everything that is straight. You build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. They're on the take. The rulers are on the take. There's a special interest group funding them and they'll vote that way no matter the cost. Because they're taking the bribe, whether it's called a campaign contribution or something more blatant under the table. This is what was happening in Judah. Her priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for money. Not only are the political leaders corrupt, the spiritual leaders are corrupt. And they're doing what they do for financial benefit. And here's what it says, Yet they lean on the Lord saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. In other words... Isaiah and Micah are out there on the streets of Jerusalem prophesying the judgment of God unless there's repentance. But most of the spiritual leaders, prophets and priests are saying, Whoa, this is the best time ever. God is on our side. Everything's going to be great. This is fantastic. How could we have such an economic boon if God wasn't for us? That was 2007. Not today. You see, that was their perspective. We're doing well. God must be blessing us. It wasn't the blessing of God. It was the crafty scheming of wicked people who were taking every advantage and twisting the law to their own benefit so they could gain the upper hand. Micah says judgment's coming. And you better turn to God. And repent. Micah also gives us some very beautiful prophecies. We probably know him best for one prophecy and one verse. One of the prophecies is you remember when the wise men came from the east and showed up at Herod's court and said, We've come to worship him that is born king of the Jews. And Herod says, King of the Jews? What? I'm the king of the Jews. I don't really know anything about this. And so he calls in the scribes and he says, tell me, where is the king of the Jews going to be born? And they said, why Bethlehem? And then they quote the passage from Micah that in Bethlehem the Messiah is going to come. And unwittingly the scribes played right into the hands of Herod and the wise men went on their way. But it is in Micah in chapter 5 that we have this Lengthy passage describing the character of Messiah who will come out of Bethlehem. This is part of God's promise to Judah. I'm not going to annihilate you. You will have a future. You will have a hope. There will be an opportunity to turn again. And another amazing thing from Micah, although I'm not going to get into it this morning because I promised you a segment on prophecy a little later, But Micah chapter 4 and some other passages describe the millennial reign of Christ. Not only his first coming, but they describe his second coming. And Micah chapter 4 paints a marvelous picture of the time when Jesus himself is leading his people like a shepherd and he is reigning right there in Jerusalem as king of kings and shepherding his people Israel. Perhaps one of the most beautiful segments of Micah comes in the last chapter. Chapter 7, verse 14, if you'll turn with me there. In chapter seven, fourteen, it says, Shepherd thy people with thy scepter, the flock of thy possession, which dwells by itself in the woodland in the midst of a fruitful field, and let them... Feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. This is actually foreshadowing that millennial reign of Christ in that last time. And the next few verses talk about Armageddon and the aftermath of the last great battle. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hand on their mouth, and their ears will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses. To the Lord our God they will come in dread, and they will be afraid before Thee. See, God is promising. You people are dangerously close to being in trouble with your neighbors. The nations are arrayed against you. But there will come a day when the shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, comes and all the nations are subdued. You get the image, they'll be kind of licking their wounds, trembling as they move toward Jerusalem. Just envision in your mind for a moment a picture in the future still of all the nations of the world gathered in one unified army against the people of God and the nation of Israel. They think they have her in their clutches. They've surrounded her and this tiny little country on the eastern Mediterranean, is about to be obliterated by all the powers of the world. And just as they begin the battle and Jerusalem is trembling in fear and terror, there comes a shout. The sky is rolled back. The King of Kings appears, the Lord Jesus Christ. blast of His fury goes out against the nations and They are slayed by the hundreds of thousands and millions in in the valley of Megiddo. And the Lord Jesus Christ appears to Israel who now recognize Him as their King. And He comes triumphantly to their relief and restoration. And all the nations of the earth are defeated by what they now know as God Almighty. And those that survive Come out of their hiding places, licking their wounds, trembling to the king of kings. Isn't that a marvelous picture of God coming to the rescue of his people? Here is a God who says, I'm really upset with what you're doing. I'm really angry with you. But if you will repent, I have a future for you. I will bring restoration. And those who heard that message did in fact under Hezekiah turn back to God and revival came. And judgment was delayed for them. Then we come to verse 18, and if you're one who likes to tape Bible verses to your mirror, here are three that you should put there. Who is a God like thee, who pardons iniquity, and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. There's an amazing picture here of the character of God. I don't want you to miss it. Who is like our God? This is what Micah's name means. Who is like Jehovah? And now asks the question, who is like our God? who pardons iniquity and passes over rebellious acts because he does not retain his anger forever. We miss something very important about God if we lightly pass over his anger. The Bible describes God as a God who hates sin and who not only is angry with the sin, but he's angry with the sinner. Sometimes we try to separate those to the point that becomes absurd. Sinners commit sin and God is angry with them. And the scripture says it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. There is a judgment. God must deal with sin, He cannot overlook it. It's a part of His essential character, it's a part of His holiness. He cannot ignore sin. It makes Him angry. It is everything that He is not. It totally opposes His purity, His holiness, His dwelling in unapproachable light. It is darkness and evil and everything He is not and He must deal with it. But the Bible says that in His holiness, And His righteous judgment, He has dealt with it in Jesus Christ on the cross. And all of His anger, He vented. And I don't mean that in some neurotic way. But all of His anger towards sin, He expended on Jesus Christ as He hung there on the cross bleeding and shedding His blood for our sin. That's what the word propitiation means. Jesus satisfied the anger and wrath and requirement of God, and He took our punishment, and it satisfied God's need for justice. The righteous for the unrighteous. The holy for the unholy. The pure for the sinful and marred. Jesus Christ bore our sin and accepted the wrath of God. And this one can now delight in His unchanging love. Because God is also a God of great compassion and of unending loving-kindness. And the Scripture says, because of that beauty of His holiness and glory of His love, it pleased Him to place the iniquity of us all upon Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? It pleased Him to do that because He is a God of unchanging love. Micah rightly asked the question, who is like our God? Who is like our God? He does not compromise. He doesn't wink away sin. He doesn't treat it lightly. And yet, in His love, He provides a remedy that is just and holy and righteous, and satisfies the demand for punishment, and makes a way for the sinner to be pardoned. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and live. Amazing passage. In verse 19, he says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, thou wilt cast all their sins into The depths of the sea. There are some passages in the Bible that talk about what God does with our sin, and I'm so glad for them. This is one of them. He will cast our sin into the depths of the sea. You know, many people misunderstand the judgment seat of Christ. They read about the judgment seat of Christ, and they read about uh, giving account, and They think that they're going to stand, even as believers and followers of Christ, that somehow they're going to stand before Christ at the time of His coming and have to give an account for all of their sins, even though they're forgiven. Friends, I have good news for you. You will see none of your sin at the judgment seat of Christ, nor will anyone else. It is gone forever. The blood of bulls and goats could not take it away, but the blood of Jesus can. God cleanses. What does cleanse mean? It doesn't mean He washes it into a bucket and saves the dirty water. He cleanses us from sin. He removes it. And Micah tells us He cast it into the depths of the sea I don't know if you've ever been out in the open water. I haven't been across the ocean. My wife did when she and her family traveled back and forth to Germany when her dad was in the military there. But I've been out in the Gulf of Mexico pretty far. And I've been far enough out to know that if you drop something overboard, if it don't float, it's gone. You're just done. It's going to the bottom. And if you can imagine being in the middle of the Atlantic or the Pacific, it's over a mile to the bottom And you drop it and it's gone forever. The currents and the sands of this ocean bottom will wash over it and it will never be found again. This is the imagery. He cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Another passage says he removes our iniquities as far from us as the east is from the west. Have you thought that one through? If he had said north from south, you can make it from the North Pole to the South Pole in about 14,000 miles. That's a measurable trip. It has a beginning and an ending. But the east from the west has no ending. You can start going east and you will never find west because you'll be going east the whole time. Or you can go the other way and you'll never find east because you'll be going west the whole time. He chose a metaphor that says infinite. God deals with our sin and puts it away. Aren't you glad for that? Praise God for that. When I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, He will evaluate my life in terms of its productivity in kingdom terms. How much have I allowed the Holy Spirit to live through me? The gold and silver and precious stone will survive the test, that which He has produced. The rest of it will disappear in vapor, smoke, and some of us will have very little to show for our lives, but we will not face our sins. They are gone forever, and we won't have to deal with them. Jesus Christ has borne them on the cross. Thou wilt give the truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham which thou didst swear to our forefathers from days of old. God has always promised a Redeemer. And Jesus Christ is that Redeemer. I'm glad to tell you that the southern kingdom under Hezekiah finally listened to Micah's message and to Isaiah, and there was revival. And they went on a little longer. And in our country today... It's not over till it's over. We have an opportunity for revival if God would grant that to us. But we have to pay attention. One of the strong verses that stands out from Micah is Micah 6 8. What does the Lord require of you? And and the way Micah poses the question, you know, it's like one of those come on, how hard can it be? What does God require? Here's the summation. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's it. Now, that's a tall order apart from Jesus Christ. I acknowledge that. But nonetheless, Micah is saying what God is looking for in you is not hard. The whole law of Moses can be summarized right here to act Justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. What does that mean? That out of the heart comes true justice. Just because you can take advantage of someone and gain more money for yourself doesn't mean it's right. It may be illegal. Just because you can have an abortion doesn't mean it's moral. Just because you can discriminate against people for one reason or another doesn't mean you should. To act justly means from my heart I do what is really right. Regardless of my opportunity to do otherwise. There are many things you can do with impunity. That you should never do. Because they're wrong. It doesn't matter if the law says you can. It's fundamentally wrong. And we need to, from the heart, act justly. To love mercy means that my heart is full of loving kindness and mercy. I want you to succeed. I want you to be blessed. In fact, the scripture says, love covers a multitude of sins. I'm quick to pardon. I'm quick to give you the benefit of the doubt. I want you to be blessed. I don't want to take advantage of you. What does the Lord require? For you yourself to always act with justice, moral, ethical righteousness, from the heart, and then to treat your neighbors with kindness and mercy knowing that they may not always act that way, but you'll still give them the benefit of the doubt. And then to cultivate a personal relationship with God on a daily basis, to walk humbly with your God. In the New Testament, Paul puts it this way, Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. It's pretty foundational, really. We need to realize that the legality of doing a thing does not make it a thing to do. There are some businesses today you should not be a part of. There are some things today you should not be involved with because they are corrupt in their essence. They don't have to be. But people choose to work them that way. There is a very stern judgment for judges, politicians, and those in authority who use their office to advance their own goals or cater to the privileged and powerful. Now, I honestly don't know how you get into politics today without catering to somebody. I don't know how you pull it off. We've gotten so far down the, the river with this in our country that it's very difficult. Not impossible, but very difficult to get elected if you truly have no favoritism and you're not uh, showing partiality to any group or interest and you're not taking money from people. It's very difficult to move forward, but friends, those who are in power have a responsibility who use it with humility and righteousness. And God pays attention to those who don't. There is a very stern judgment for priests and prophets who practice for financial gain. Wow. You know, I can't imagine why someone would want to go into pastoral ministry because it seems like a good vocational choice. That's just the height of dumb. It really is. There's a a conundrum here. There's a paradox and it's a very important one. And I'm grateful to say to you as a congregation that you do well. It is the responsibility of a people to care for their pastors and teachers and elders who devote their full time to the preparation and teaching and prayer and investing in the spiritual well-being of the community. The Bible commends that and says, Give those elders double honor. They're worthy of their hire. But on the other side of the coin, it says, You who are in that role, don't you dare do it for money. Ever. do not shepherd the flock of God among you for sordid gain but make sure you do so out of the compulsion of love willingly showing yourself to be an example to the flock and recognizing that you will incur a stricter judgment it is of utmost importance that no one in prophetic pastoral priestly teaching ministry do so for a living there needs to be a great freedom under God to speak the truth regardless of the cost and in Micah's day most of the priests and prophets were saying oh God is among us this is a wonderful time we've never been so blessed this is fantastic and a few of them, like Micah and Isaiah, were saying, God's judgment is coming and you're in trouble. They were not happy with them. But it is a dangerous thing for someone to have the office of spiritual ministry and then preach the message that people want because it works. We are called upon to proclaim the truth regardless of the consequences. You know, one of the tests I have to constantly examine myself with is I have to ask myself on a regular basis, would I do what I do if I didn't get paid? And the obvious answer, I mean, I I have to get paid from somewhere. I I have bills just like you do. I have to have pay from somewhere. But the answer is I would do what I do without pay if I had to work another job to provide because I don't do this for money. I do this because God has called me to do it, and frankly, I don't have a choice. (laughs) Paul says I'm under compulsion. Jeremiah says I tried to keep my mouth shut and a fire welled up within my bones and I had to speak out because I'm compelled by the Spirit of God to do what I do. We need to be sure that we're listening to people who do what they do because God has called them not because they see it as a means of getting wealthy. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. The heart of man is the same at all times. Doesn't it sound like Micah could be uh, writing a column in today's newspaper? Doesn't it sound like he could be taking on Wall Street and government and business and greed and the economy? Doesn't it sound like he's right with us? Because people are people the world over. And they need Jesus. God is still looking for the people that will cultivate a personal relationship with Him. And in walking with Him, do justice and love mercy. Father, I pray this morning that You would draw us to Your heart. That we would be a people after Your heart. That we would not do everything we can because we can get away with it. But that moral restraint would come from the Spirit of God and we would act righteously because You are living through us. Teach us to be a humble people, a merciful people, and godly from the core of our being. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.